Jack Spearger with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is August 2nd, 2013. This is episode 1178 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. Yeah, that's right. It's Friday. And you know what that means. That means it's time for us to take your calls to uh, the Think Line. The Think Line is 866-65-THINK. Again, 866-65-THINK. You call that number and you won't hear, hi, this is Jack, you're on the air. What's your question, caller? No, you won't hear that because this is a podcast, not a radio show. It's pre-recorded. Occasionally somebody gets confused by that. Call in and like, uh, hello? You hear them on the recording, hello? Is anybody there? It's like, can you just hear the message? Anyway, the way this works, you call in, you call from a quiet location. If you're on a cell phone, look for a couple bars or more up there on your signal level so I can hear you. And uh, leave me your question, your comment, your concern, whatever it is you want to hear on the air. Uh, you get about two minutes of time to do that. The formula for a successful call, have your point or your question in your mind, or even if you need to, written down. Have that being done in one to two sentences. Make it, and then give your details following your point or your question. If you do that, your odds of getting on the air are a good 40% of calls like that get on the air. If you do not do that, your odds of getting on the air go down drastically, anywhere between 1% and 10% of a chance of getting on the air. So I'm trying to help you here. It's how we get through the calls quickly and screen them, and I'm able to do a minimal amount of editing if I have to to your call, if there's some long pauses or things like that need to come out for the uh, listener's edification. Uh, because unlike radio, it's the one weakness against radio here. I can't like say I, I don't need to know that or you know ask you a follow up question. We need to be quick, direct, and to the point with these calls to make them work in this format. Maybe someday I'll figure out how to do live calls, but actually it's been working great this way for over five years now. So I think we're just going to keep rocking on this way. Again, the number to call eight six six sixty five think eight six six sixty five think, and you could hear yourself on the air as early as next Friday. If you don't hear yourself within two to three weeks of making your call, assume your call got uh, flushed out of the queue and uh, make your call again. And sooner or later, you will get on the air. With that, before I take your calls, I want to go ahead and take care of our sponsors of the day today. Sponsor of the day number one today is Survival Gear Bags. Hey, you want some great bags to keep your gear in, whether for bugging out, bugging in, getting home, or active shooter bag, or first aid, any kind of bag you would need, guess who's got it? Survival Gear Bags got it, and they got great prices, great selection, great stuff. Kelly John Doe's an awesome guy, but let's say you already got your bag. Let's say you're buying your bag and you want some great stuff to put in that bag right away that you don't already have. Survival Gear Bags has that as well. They'll sell it to you a la carte. They even have some great kits over there. Check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, the original Survival Podcast sponsor. How is someone the original sponsor? Well, they're the first one. That's what makes them the original one. Safe Castle was the first company that came to me and said, Jack, we want to be part of what you're doing. We see where it's going, and we want to be a good long-term partner. That was about four and a half years ago. We've been doing the show now a little over five years. I think I went about a half a year, a good six, seven, eight months, something like that, before I took a first sponsor. It was actually January of 2009, so it was right around six months. That's when Safe Castle came on board. They've been here ever since. So from January 2009 until July, August 2013, you tell me another podcast that has a sponsor that's that loyal. I'd like to see it. Most of our sponsors are loyal, but Safe Castle is uber loyal. 
been here from the very beginning. And what do they have from tactical to practical and everything in between? Whatever you're looking for for your prepping needs, you will find it at their website. Check them out at safecastle.com. And uh, the best way to visit Safe Castle, Survival Gear Bags, and all of our sponsors isn't to type their address in. It's to go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, which is my website. You'll see banners in the right-hand margin. Choose the sponsor you want to do business with on that day. Click on their banner. This is not so I get a kickback. This is not so I get anything. This is to make sure you're dealing with my actual sponsors and not a brand pirate. Because trust me, folks, if you build a brand... Someone will pirate it. It happens all the time. Next up, want to remind you guys about the TSP Gear Shop. Man, we have some cool stuff. If you like coffee, get over there and get one of our French Press coffee mugs. They look great. They work great. They're awesome. And you just take that mug with you with coffee stored in this secret compartment down in the bottom of it. You'll have coffee anywhere you go and can make hot water. And uh, if you're a household like mine where somebody likes coffee to taste like Well, coffee. And somebody else in the household likes coffee to taste like, well, brown water. Then you might actually, she's probably mad at me too now, but you might actually really find these to be useful because each person can make coffee at their own strength, one or two cups at a time. Check it out. Survival, uh, the survival, uh, the survival podcast gear shop at tspgear.com. And that's just one cool thing we have there. We have a lot of, a lot of cool stuff for you. Check out some of the shirts. The Second Amendment shirts are awesome. I wear mine all the time. I encourage you to get one and spread the word about the Sentinel and the Second Amendment. Uh, with that, I'm ready to get into the uh, main topic of today's show. I want to tell you, though, we have an interesting show today. I have never had a show with as much representation by the listener council, the expert council, as I do today. Today I have questions that are going to be answered by Darby Simpson. Frank, who's you know the homestead guy, the, the rancher guy. If you have a question on livestock, uh, raising livestock for market, setting up your homestead, this is the guy, Darby Simpson. Frank Sharp. You have questions on firearms and tactical things, Frank Sharp's the man. I got it from him today. Tim Glantz, military surplus and communications gear. Got, a, got an answer from him today. Stephen Harris, all things energy. Got a uh, got two from him today. Chef Keith Snow, all things cooking. Got one from him today. At least it's not going to make you hungry. All right? It's like I say, because Chef Keith, when he answers a question, everybody's like, damn, I'm hungry. This one's going to be on configuring small kitchens to be more effective from a listener that's got that problem with a new homestead. So I got that for you. I got about six, seven questions that I'm going to take directly. Just a tremendous show today. I'd like to do more shows like this on Friday. Um, as much as I love answering your questions, man, getting, you know, five members of the council rolling at once is great. So check out, uh, any Friday show in the show notes toward the bottom. You'll see our entire expert council. I'll give it to you real quick here. Our expert counsel, Frank Sharp Jr. from Fortress Defense Consultants, Joe Nobody from Holding Your Ground, Darby Simpson from DarbySimpson.com, Ben Falk from Host Systems Design, Paul Wheaton from Permies.com, Tim Glantz from Old Grouch's Military Surplus, Stephen Harris from Solar1234.com, and Chef Keith Snow from Harvest Eating. If you have a question for any of those folks, the formula, dial the think line, like I said, 866-65-THINK. And uh, leave your question. Say, this question is for Paul Wheaton. This question is for Stephen Harris. The question is, da-da-da-da-da. The details are, da-da-da-da-da. Immediately after you hang up your phone, pick up your mouse or your keyboard and shoot me an email. Say, Jack, I just called in a question for council member, fill in the blank, from phone number XYZPDQ. That way I can find your call and give it priority in the queue. I try to do that with expert council calls. With that, let's go ahead and uh, take first call today. This one's not for a council member. Yeah, it's for me. Hey, Jack. This is Harlan, low-watt living on the forum. My question is, 
why is the government so afraid of survivalists and survivalism in general? Is it strictly for uh, the reasons of dependency, that they want us to be dependent only on them? Or that doesn't seem to be enough for the amount of fear that is uh, produced by government towards survivalism. And I was just wondering your take on this. Thank you, and I love the show. Well, Harlan, I, I think you're actually honed in on it perfectly to a degree, but if we're going to have that discussion, there's something we have to have first, and that is a discussion about people that call themselves survivalists that are not, what we're, not who we are. There are people out there who are flipping nuts. Right, so there's this small group of people that their version of survivalism and the, is the new world order is going to march with blue helmets every day and throw us all in FEMA camps, and it's going to happen very, very soon. Now, it's it's with this group of people, it's been going to happen very, very soon for a very, very, very long time. This group of people's been around since the Cold War era and 60s and the 70s, and it's morphed and changed, and people have come in and out of it. But it's a very tiny group of people that are survivalists. That's what they call themselves. In fact, many of them today say, well, we're the real survivalists, and all these prepper people, these aren't survivalists, right? A survivalist, as I've explained before, is one who specializes in the ability to continue to exist. That's actually, if you deconstruct the word, it's what it means. And ist, I-S-T, uh, as, 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 as a suffix, means one who specializes. So a specialist is a, you know, one who specializes. A, you know, a therapist is one who specializes in therapy. Right? So a survivalist is one who specializes in survival, which means it's pretty much all human beings who are not stupid and asleep at the switch. I mean, I think that one of the most important things to you should be, will I wake up breathing tomorrow? So rule number one, don't die. That's, that's rule number one of survivalism. And then there's a group of people that are truly specialists at it that we've thought about, hey, I don't just want to continue to exist. I want to continue to thrive. And I realize that there's things that can go wrong. And I realize that the government can't fix my problems. So the, the truth is the government doesn't fear either group. Not the way you're asking the question. They're not scared of them like they're going to do something. But they do fear the representation by them. The, the little group, they actually don't care about. They really don't because they know most of them are nothing but windbags. And the ones that are you know here and there crazy enough to actually do something that you would call a terrorist-like act are, are so small in number that they go right in with anybody else that would do that for any other reason whatsoever. Right, because there's people that will blow up shit because they're, you know, they're just brain damaged, and there's people that'll blow up shit just because they're angry, and it doesn't really matter what they're brain damaged about or what they're angry about. They're dangerous people, and something needs to be done about them. And that small subgroup of the small subgroup of a small subgroup of people are lumped in with a totally different thing when it comes to law enforcement. It's not like, gee, if someone's a survivalist, they might actually blow something up. They might put that image out there. But the people actually trying to hunt down people that actually do mean to do harm to their fellow citizens know better. They really do to a large degree. Now, some of the beat cops that have been brainwashed by the feds may not, but the people that are actually doing the real work, they do know better. I've talked to enough of them that I know they know better. Okay, So that's that subgroup. So why does... This entire prepper, modern survival movement get lumped in with those nuts, 
right? And I don't just mean the people that are, you know, hardcore. I mean the people that really are, like, they lumped the first thing they did, they lumped the hardcore, true survival-oriented, rugged individual in with that group of nuts. Who And that group of hardcore survival guys doesn't want anything to do with those nuts either, right? And then, they, then all of a sudden, as this whole thing kind of spread, and you got people, everybody from, you know, 55-year-old women who have decided that they're going to have a deep pantry to people like me that are more of the homestead-type survivalist, people that are still the wilderness, all of us get lumped in with that. Why? Because we all point something out that the government doesn't want the average citizen to realize. Actually, two things. Number one, you are not dependent on government. Not you don't have to be. You're not. You can exist without them. That is the scariest shit in the world for them. That's the real fear, that people will realize you don't need them. And another thing they don't want you to know is they can't help you all the time. The government, to continue its practice of expansion, and I want you to tell me one time in the history of any government before, you know, prior to collapse, that a government has willingly downsized. And it's actually never happened. There was a very brief period after World War II, under Dwight Eisenhower, where that appeared to happen here, and all it was was a reconfiguration, and immediately began a massive growth curve. And I used to believe Eisenhower actually tried, and then the next folks came in and, and turned it back around. The reality is, when I examined everything, it was the plan all along. So governments never willingly contract. They always expand. Once they get to a certain level of size, look at the government today. What business is the government not in? You know, let's not even worry about enumerated powers of the Constitution, and because they they've been wiping their ass with the Constitution since the '60s, easy. In fact, way before. I mean, FDR wiped his ass with the Constitution all the time. Plenty of things. F Lincoln wiped his ass with the Constitution. So we know that's been gone for a long time. But even coming from those times forward, what what business is the government not sticking its nose into now? So it's become so large and so bloated. The only way it can continue. Its primary goal, which is expansion, is to have the people believe in complete cradle-to-grave dependence being necessary from government. So anything, anything that gets in the way of that, anything that starts making people go, do, do we really need this? Not even a new program, right? When people start questioning, do we need this? Do we need this? Do we need that? Do we really need them doing this? That's dangerous. That's the danger. It's not, they're not afraid that the, the, the you know, survival movement will blow something up. They're, they're afraid that the, the modern survival movement is, is so much bigger than people that store food. This modern survival movement is actually a giant anarcho-libertarian movement that has people starting to question the need for government. And instead of rebelling directly, it has more and more people simply going, you know what? I just don't need you anymore. And becoming apathetic towards government. Making government irrelevant. Turning off their propaganda apparatus, which is the mainstream news, and tuning in to alternative media of all kinds. And this isn't, this is so much bigger. They, they just pick their, their enemies. And what they do is they want to separate it. So they call us survivalists. So they call other people other things. But they're pissed off when citizens in Oakland, California, Hire private security and say your, your cops can't cover our neighborhood. We'll hire somebody to do it. They're pissed off when buses that run for a private university in California start picking up citizens for free and saying, hey, we're going here anyway. There's room on the bus. Get on because the bus lines are down in number of buses and people can't get where they want to go. They're angry about that. 
They're angry about people growing their own food. They're angry about everything. Anything that leads people toward independence, they're angry and afraid of. Because it demonstrates their irrelevance. And everything you see that's a propaganda smear campaign against any group that's being independent and self-sufficient, that's the root. It's not oversimplifying things. I know you said, I said, this seems too simple. No. It's, it's threatening their apparatus of power. Politicians are as afraid of public apathy toward a need for government as banks are at all money disintegrating. Think about it. That's the truth. The, the political apparatus needs your dependence as much as the pharmaceutical industry needs you to be sick and the agricultural industry needs you to be hungry and the banking industry needs you to be in debt. Those are all pillars of dependence. And with government, it's a direct dependent relationship. They want at least half of society suckling at the tit of government. And every single person that goes, I don't need this anymore, and walks away, is a threat to their very existence. That's what they're afraid of. Because, see, if just, it, you, people say, well, it can't happen. It can't, there's no way enough people will turn away. You don't have to have enough people turn away to bring the whole ship down. All you have to do is have enough people turn away to stop the growth. Once the growth stops and government stagnates, it only has one way to go down. And everybody in government knows when the ship starts to sink, even if it doesn't go all the way underwater, when you start bailing out, they could be the one getting bailed. Let's take another question. Hey, Jack. This is Richard from Alaska. I just had a quick question for you. Uh, I have no debt whatsoever, but when I got married, I inherited my wife's student loan debt, and it's roughly about uh, seventeen dollars to $18,000, so it's not insurmountable by any means. But my question is, we're looking at settling down and buying a house. Now, I have probably close to about $8,000 in savings, uh, as well as other precious metals and stuff like that, but I, I don't want to touch those. But with the cash on hand, I'm wondering if it would be more financially sound to take that lump and pay off those student loan debts, at least partially, get about a third of it cut down, or to hold on to that as a down payment on the house. Now, I have access to the VA home loan, which does not require a, a down payment, but I find that kind of foolhardy in a way, and that I, it doesn't make much sense to me uh, to not put something down. Now, we're continuing to put money into savings, so it is slowly growing, but it's you know not going to be uh, $10,000 every month. So my question would be, should I pay that off in one lump sum, or should I use that for a down payment on the house? Or should we just wait on the house until we completely paid off that debt and then uh, use that to whatever we put in savings as well uh, as a larger down payment? I appreciate your time, and thanks a lot. Thanks. All right, the first thing we need to do is eliminate the mentality of paying off the student loan with a, with a lump sum, okay? Because... You can't pay it off with a lump sum because you don't have enough money to pay it off, period. You just don't. It's not that big of a debt. And it's a debt that you need to attack and you need to come up with a dissolution plan. Like how long is this debt going to take to get paid off? How much are you going to put on it? And right now you have no other debt. So this is an optimum time to pay that debt off. You only have, you know, eight or nine thousand dollars you said in the bank. 
This is not money to spend on anything. If you had $50,000 in the bank and you wanted to take $18,000 to pay off the student loan debt, I would think very, very seriously about doing it. Having nine and having 18 in debt, paying off half of it, still owing nine and having zero in the bank is not a good idea. That is a bad idea. Don't do it. When you do that, some shit will happen and be a big mess that could have been cleared up with a thousand bucks that you will not have. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how it's going to happen, but I'm telling you it's going to happen. It might even not happen if you don't spend the money, but if you spend the money and go down to zero, Murphy is going to walk right into your house and kick you dead square in the Ghibli's. I'm telling you, it happens every single time someone does it. Invite Murphy into your life and he will kick you dead smack between the legs. The next thing is, I want you for your own happiness to never again worry about where the debt came from. When you married your wife, all good and bad from both sides became joined as one. There is no longer yours and mine. You did not inherit anything. It simply is. So now you simply have $18,000 worth of debt to deal with. That is the only way that you guys should think about this debt. It wouldn't matter if it was on a credit card. It doesn't matter what it is. The only reason it matters that it's student loan debt is it's permanent debt until you pay it off. You cannot get away from it. They will garnish your Social Security wages to pay it back. So we have to take this debt very seriously and work on it. Do we buy a house right now? And do we worry about a down payment on a house if you can get a zero down payment loan? Assuming your credit's good enough. And assuming you can get a $0 loan from VA and finance the whole thing, it probably makes sense to do it with some exceptions. This is what I mean. You can do that, but there are many parts of purchasing a house that are not part of the purchase price of the house. And usually this adds up to several thousand, six, seven thousand dollars worth of expense. These are things like title fees and all kinds of you know, inspections and all kinds of other crap. If you can buy smart right now, and if you can find a house with some equity in it, and your mortgage is such that you have equity even with those those things built into it. So there's some equity in the home. So let's say that by the time you're done buying it, based on the appraised value of the home and everything that goes into it, your house is a $170,000 house mortgage and a $180,000 equity home. And if you're smart, you can do that. And if you're going to work on it and you can pay the mortgage, and still make a serious commitment to paying off your $18,000 debt, there is no reason for you not to buy a house now other than you haven't found the house you want to live in yet. That is one way to approach this, and I would be okay with that. The other way to approach this is to be very serious about paying off the debt, to, to make a serious commitment to making as large of a payment as you can on the debt possible, preserve the savings, get the debt executed, and then go buy a house. The only thing that makes me want to let you, you know, kind of off the hook with buying the house while you have the student loan debt is that interest rates now are hovering in the 4% range. And with inflation being where it is, as much as I hate debt, I have to admit it's not like typical debt to have an appreciating asset leveraged with a low interest loan with a mortgage and the Savings you will obtain through a mortgage interest deduction on your taxes are such that you'll probably break even with rent in the end. So if you look at a rent cost of X and a, and a purchase mortgage price of Y, the differential will probably come back to you in taxes. 
That doesn't mean you buy a house with a mortgage to get a tax break. That is a stupid piece of advice. But if you're going to buy a house with a mortgage anyway, considering the tax break and the total cost, it's just math, and it makes sense to do. I tell you, you've got two real paths here. One, get serious about the debt, pay it down, and get it paid off in a year or two, then buy a house. Number two, go ahead and buy the house now with the same commitment and make sure the numbers work. I would not liquidate the bank savings account to do this, and I would put it into part of a, of, a, of, a, of a house cost before I would into the student loan cost. Because the student loan debt is a very small debt, and the, the house is actually a more complex issue if you ever need to exit it. So you might end up with, yes, you might finance your house with a VA loan, and you might get 100% financing on the mortgage value, but you may find yourself needing some capital for some of the other expenses. Generally, they will let you roll those into the loan. The problem is, based on the appraised value of the house, is there room for that? Okay, And they're much tighter on that than they used to be. So you have to really conserve some capital for that home purchase. And you need to conserve some capital because after you buy that house, you're going to have expenses you never planned on. Owning a home costs money, especially in the first six months you buy, after you buy a home. So you need some capital reserved for that. Don't be afraid, though, to finance 100% of the house with a 4% loan with a VA-guaranteed backing, okay, if the house has sufficient equity in it that it makes sense for you to do so. Don't be afraid of that. That's, that's a benefit you've earned as a veteran. You can abuse that benefit and hurt yourself, or you can leverage it properly and help yourself. I've purchased five houses in my life. Second house I ever purchased, we did with VA, and I did a, basically a dollar down loan. We financed everything. We bought very, very smart. We bought that house for $137,000, and three years later, I sold that house for $195,000. That was a proper application of debt. Debt is not in of itself all evil, but the improper application of debt is what's evil. Now, if I could have gotten in touch with you guys years ago, then you might not have this $18,000 worth of student loan debt. But you do have it, but it's not in any way insurmountable. If we just look at the raw underlying debt there, it's about $750 for two years. I know there's interest. It'll, it'll, if you're paying payments on it like that, it'll get eaten away fast. Can you afford to do that? I don't know. That's up to you. If you can't afford to do that, then you have to look at a different timeline. On a three-year timeline, you're looking at about 500 bucks a month. I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that because otherwise you're going to go, well, it's not that bad. We'll just make the minimum payment on it. You make the minimum payment on student loan debt, even an $18,000 student loan debt, and you might as well give it a name and call it a pet because it's going to be with you when your kids are getting out of high school. You've got to get serious about this. So if you would buy a house right now, And it would make it impossible for you to put at least $500 a month on that debt. And if you don't buy a house, you can. Don't buy a house yet. I'm not saying at that point you have to liquidate that debt in full. But if you did that for a year, you would drive the debt down enough that maybe now you can see way away into the house. So just you got to make this decision for yourself. That's just how I would analyze it. Let's go ahead and take another call. Hi, this is Agori Culture from New Hampshire. Uh, my question is for uh, Keith Snow, and my question is, how do you survive a small kitchen? Uh, my wife and I are about to put an offer on our dream homestead. Uh, it's almost perfect except for a small problem. 
Uh, the kitchen's so small that you can stand one spot and reach the uh, sink, the uh, fridge, and the stove all at the same time. Um, that's about 43 square feet of floor space, about 12 to 14 feet of counter space, and 72 square feet of gross area. And um, we're both raw foodies. Um, we, we're going to be raising animals, um, vegetables, making charcuterie, cheese, canning, and fermenting. Uh, and we will have uh, plenty of storage space and a three-season porch for uh, big projects. And uh, any help uh, is appreciated, and congratulations on going gluten-free. It's the best thing since uh, sliced piltong. Uh, yeah, sliced piltong. All right, we're going to let uh, Chef Keith uh, give an answer to that. Caller, though, you did ask a second question of me or Paul Wheaton, and I'm not going to put it on the air because it's too vague, and the answer is anything you want. <laughs> You'll know what I'm talking about. Everybody else, let's uh, hear the answer from Chef Keith Snow. Hey, it's Chef Keith Snow. I've got an answer for New Hampshire guy's question. Sorry I couldn't make out your name there, bud. But um, it sounds like you've uh, found your dream property, and uh, it's got everything you need, places to raise animals, grow food, but it's got a bit of a small kitchen, and you're a little worried about it. And I can understand there's a lot of times when you look at a a home and uh, maybe it's a something you're about to buy and it's got just about everything and maybe the bathrooms are too small or there's always some give and take with um, houses even if you build them uh, we built a dream house a few years back and and um, you know there's always something that needs to be left out or just can't be perfect so uh, don't fret it but I wanted to talk specifically about this kitchen now keep in mind um, Small kitchens can produce tons of food. So don't, um, don't worry. Maybe you're thinking, oh no, you know, when Thanksgiving comes around, how am I going to pull it off? Um, I've cooked in many, many very small cramped restaurant kitchens and, uh, we were able to put out, you know, hundreds of meals, uh, every day out of small kitchens, just like the ones, the one that you described in your house where there's, you know, very small galley and everything is close by. So it can be done. And keep in mind things like boats. Um, I know a guy that used to cook on a yacht and, uh, the yacht was 110 feet long, but the kitchen was teeny tiny. I mean, it had everything he needed, but you know, he had to put out a lot of meals and these folks did, you know, serious entertaining and they were, you know, big money people. So it wasn't microwave dinners he was putting out fresh, really nice food, and uh, I was able to do it in a teeny little galley kitchen. Uh, same thing for RVs. Some people uh, have these great big RVs, but they've got very small kitchens, but they still eat well. So you can definitely put out nice food um, in a small kitchen, so I wouldn't worry about that. So um, allay your fears of the small kitchen. It can be done, and sometimes a small kitchen can be better. Um, the house I mentioned that I built had a huge kitchen. It was a giant kitchen, somewhere about 18 by 25, something like that. And it was, it had a huge island as well that was like six by eight, something just enormous. And, uh, it could be a pain in the neck because if you were on one side of the kitchen, you needed something, you had to walk all the way around the island to get it and all the way back. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're doing it over and over, it can take time. So, being in a small spot can be good. Now, a couple of things to think about. Vertical storage. Um, when you've got a small kitchen, you don't want to be, if you can avoid it, 
um, storing all your pots and pans. You mentioned you were a foodie. You probably have a good collection of cookware. Uh, definitely consider a hanging pot rack. Um, a lot of times a hanging pot rack can take a huge burden off of your counter storage by raising things up in the air. Also, your knives. Um, one of the things I see a lot with folks is they have these uh, drawers in their kitchen that are just jam-filled with knives, uh, cooking knives, you know, chef's knives, cut, uh, bread knives, and they're never going to stay sharp like that. That is the worst place to store knives. So rather than take up all that space, um, why not have, and I don't even recommend so much. And right now we've, we've got a big kitchen, so we've got like four knife blocks. People come in, they must think, man, is this guy a surgeon or a chef? Cause there's a ton of knives in my kitchen, but, um, I do recommend having, having knives on a magnet. And those are very handy and it takes advantage of space that usually would go to waste, like under a cabinet. You know, if you've got children, just make sure that they're not going to have easy access to these sharp knives. The other thing, when you're using these magnets, they're usually steel and you need to make sure your knives are dry before you put them up on the magnet because they can, they can rust. So uh, definitely consider knife magnets. Also, what about any shelving? Uh, again, you've got walls, that's vertical space. Sometimes you can put up a few shelves and it makes all the difference. Maybe a little, uh, maybe above your stove, um, if you've got a large enough space, you can put a little spice shelf. Oftentimes in our professional kitchens, we would have a shelf above the stove where we could store all types of things. And it did create a bit of a, a cleaning problem because you'd have to wipe grease off of it every so often, but in a home kitchen, it might not be as bad. Um, Another thing, what about hanging baskets? Uh, I've seen kitchens that are very small, like where there's um, sort of an island created by a little eating area, and a lot of times folks would have hanging baskets that were up in the ceiling, and, and you could store things like onions and garlic and um, na- napkins, whatever, maybe hanging in a basket. That's another idea. Also, in-floor storage, and this is something that I wish I had done in my other house, um, depending upon the width of the joists in your kitchen, you may be able to um, go down into your crawl space or basement or what have you and identify the joists that are right um, under your kitchen, and you might be able to easily create a trap door. And maybe you have hardwood floors, heck, a skill saw, a little little carpentry work, some hinges, and uh, you could have you know some sliding storage space between the joists in your floor i've seen that done very nicely with there's even systems that you can buy that fit right in there with like a sliding track and generally if it's going to be you know under the house like that um it'll be cooler might be a good place to store potatoes and onions and things like that so consider that um another thing is the things that you have do they nest properly like I've got a lot of cookware, literally uh, $8,000, worth of cookware. But many of, many of the pieces nest together, and that is a, a good thing for storage. Will your pots nest together? Because if they don't, then they need uh, – each time you place a pot there, it's taking up some square footage. If they've got to sit next to each other, it takes up even more square footage. So do you have a cookware set? That nests. Now, one of my sets comes from France. It's Maviel. It's a um, expensive French copper, but almost the entire set, except for one odd piece, they all nest together. So you could put down the 
the uh, skillet and everything will sit on top of it, and it's a full set. So that's a handy thing to keep in mind. Um, but also, in this house, we've got cabinets that open and big drawers that pull out. Now, you may want to consider doing some cabinet renovation in this small kitchen to make sure that you don't just have puny shelves in there or that the storage you do have is optimized. Also, um, a lot of times people that cook a lot, like me, have um, big, thick cutting boards. Now, I've got a number of big, thick, heavy, pain-in-the-neck, hard-to-clean, have-to-oil-them cutting boards, and those are usually the real you know, hard rock maple or cherry or black walnut. But currently, I've got those stored on top of the cabinets, so they don't get used that often because they're very heavy and you have to get up on a stool to get them down. Um, but we have a collection of flat cutting boards. Now, I don't recommend glass. I don't recommend... Um, the cheesy plastic ones, you, you can get one that's plastic to separate, you know, beef and chicken and vegetables, things like that. But there's a brand called Epicurean. You can find it online everywhere. Um, Epicurean cutting surfaces. And these I highly recommend. They're very thin. They do have some that are a little thicker, but, you know, in the neighborhood of three-eighths of an inch, half a quarter inch, something like that, very thin, extremely durable. You can't kill these things. They can get wet and can go in the dishwasher. They don't harbor bacteria. They're good on your knives, and they're very thin. So you could have four or five of these things slid into a vertical storage under your cabinets, and then you know there's all your cutting boards in a very you know in one or two inches of space. So consider that as well. Um, now your sink. One of the things that clutters up kitchens is people have these teeny little you know double bowl sinks. That, um, you know, they have a divider in the middle. Again, if you've got cutting boards, major pain in the neck trying to clean a cutting board when you've got a little, you know, 12-inch sink on either side. So I would immediately take that sink out and put in a deep um, single, um, you know, bowl, I guess you could call it, farm sink. And you can get these, you know, sometimes online or, or in Lowe's. Um, stainless steel or other types of materials. That's going to be your choice, but make sure it's deep. If you can get one that's a foot deep or 16 inches deep, that's what I had in my house, a big, long, deep sink, and that can be very handy. You know, if you just ate and uh, you don't get around to putting the dishes um, in the dishwasher right away, you've got plenty of storage in the sinks, and again, easier to. if it's easier to clean things, they're going to get cleaned and put away sooner. That means less clutter. Also, can you have two dishwashers? I had two dishwashers in my other house. That was a big um, space saver as well. Um, moving right along here, organization is going to be key. If you're in a little kitchen, things like spices, I mean, a great idea to, to take care of spices is what about putting them, like when you open up a cabinet, if you put Velcro on there and you, you get little uh, spice cans, you can label the front of the can, you put a little Velcro on the back, and then it will uh, attach to the back of the cabinet. You could easily put, you know, 15 cans of spices on the back of a cabinet door so it's hidden from view, except when you're about to cook, you open it up, and you can just pull them right off and then put them up when you're done. And uh, these cans, you know, you can find them different places. If you if you want, you know, 10 cans or something and you want to email me, Keith at HarvestEating.com, give me your address, if you pay for the shipping, I'll be happy to give you the cans because I, I sell the uh, Harvest Eating spices and they're in those cans. And the cans aren't very expensive, so I'd be happy to help you out there. 
But that's an idea because a lot of times people have tons of clutter when it comes to spices. You know, a zillion little jars of spices take up space. So consider doing that. Now, organization, um, list making, um, keeping a list somewhere in your kitchen because you want to make sure space is tight, uh, that you keep, you know, a, a pretty close inventory on things. So if you use up the last can of something, put it on a list. Just basic organization with your with your inventory um, really helps out that way you don't run out of things but also that you don't have you know you don't go to to the store and buy oh, I need beans when you know you had beans in storage so having a little inventory list like that is handy also a fifo list first in first out list on your freezer you mentioned you had some freezer space what about a little whiteboard they make whiteboards that are I don't know, 12 inches by 12 inches, something like that, you can put on there. And when you put something in to this freezer, let's say you put in five pounds of flank steak, you know, it's going to be labeled on your, you know, you wrap it up properly, you put it in there and you make a list, you know, meat, five pounds flank, flank steak, you know, and then you put a expiration date or, or the date that you put it in there. That way, you know, and you don't have, you don't go to the store wondering, oh, you know, I'd like to have some flank steak. Well, you've got some already. If you just check that little board, you can keep an idea of what you have. And these are some of the tricks that we use in the restaurant industry to make sure that, you know, we're not uh, – because a lot of times when a restaurant goes belly up or has problems is they lose track of what they have in inventory, Um, whether it's food or produce, you know, canned goods, whatever it might be. You need to have an idea of what that is, and that's going to be critical in a small kitchen to help maintain that. The other thing, um, just general, you know, being careful, like when you have a small space and, uh, I see my wife does this a lot. She'll, she'll start cooking, you know, dinner and she'll take, you know, jug of milk out or, you know, some yogurt or whatever it is. And then we're sitting down eating and I look over and those things are still out. Now, kind of cleaning up as you go, while it may sound like, duh, everybody knows that some people just don't. They don't make a habit of it, but when you, you know, you cut an onion in half and you, you know, dice it up, it goes into the pot. Don't leave the other half out. Get that thing put away and, and clean up after yourself as you go. And that really helps to make your kitchen seem bigger. But, um, that's all the advice I think I can give you at this point. And, uh, it sounds like you got a great property. So don't worry about the kitchen being a little small. Uh, over time, you can make some changes like that farmhouse sink, maybe some, uh, pull out shelves in the cabinets. Um, maybe some underfloor storage, some of the ideas that I mentioned. Also, make sure that you've got a great refrigerator, one that's got a ton of room. Uh, a lot of those sort of double Dutch door refrigerators with big pullouts, those are nice to have. So um, hopefully you enjoy that wonderful house in that great free state, man. I'd, I'd really feel bad for you if that house was in like New York or California, but you're in New Hampshire, bro. How bad can it be? Um, everyone, thanks so much for listening. I hope you all have a Great day, Jack. Thanks for what you do. Take care, everybody. All right, not being an expert on kitchens and only being an expert on cooking, uh, I have nothing to add to that. I think that's great suggestions from a guy that spent his whole life in the food service industry. And uh, that's not a typical survival question, but, boy, I'll bet you there's a lot of people out there looking for that homestead 
And uh, that understanding how to optimize that space is, is really useful. In fact, Dorothy and I found that question very useful because we have a pretty small kitchen. We've come up with a unique solution to it. Actually, somebody came up with it a long time ago, but a friend recently restated it, and now someone else thinks it's a great idea. But that's actually very, very useful for us, and uh, and I think it will be for a lot of people, and if not so much now, things to keep in mind when you're looking for that homestead, and you're like, everything's perfect, but... And that same type of thought process can be used to optimize other small spaces. Uh, now, the next thing that I have for you actually is a question for uh, Council Member Frank Sharp Jr. I've done something this time around that I've not done before, and that's I've sent questions for council members to them in text. I don't want to do this. I'm going to say this again. I don't want to do this. Now, a couple of them I chose to send that were text. But if you want a council member to answer your question, I would really love it. I would really appreciate it if instead of sending me an email, you would call it in and then email me and let me know where you called from. It works better for this. But let's go ahead and uh, get this question from Frank Sharp Jr. I'll read it to you this time. So here's the question. It comes from Carlton. What spare parts should I keep on hand for my new pistol for guns long, short, scattered in general? My fiancé and I recently bought our first pistol, a burst of thunder 9mm for practice and CHL qualification here in Texas. We are learning the ins and outs and effective uses, maintenance, shooting regularly, but I am aware of some parts where over time. What pieces should we gather going forward so we are prepared to handle standard wear and tear, or perhaps a time when repairing is the only way of having a functional firearm? Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to say right now to give Carlton, uh, you know, uh, a fair shake. Carlton did not ask me to send that to Frank Sharp. I chose to send that one. So Carlton, you're not getting a demerit for emailing your question to a council member. I just wanted to point that out and encourage others who have council member questions to call them in. Again, that number is 866-65-THINK. Now, Frank, sir, what say you on spare parts for the Bursa Thunder? Hi, Jack. This is Frank from Fortress Defense. I'm responding today to Carlton's question regarding spare parts for his Bursa Thunder pistol. I'm not the world's biggest Bursa expert. I see very few of them actually come through courses, but I do know that they have a reputation as being a well-made, robust pistol. They're made in Argentina, so for those who own them and they're considering some sort of apocalyptic scenario playing out, uh, getting spare parts for them during something like that would be virtually impossible. Uh, it's probably a good idea to have some spare parts around. With most guns, the weak link, uh, or at least piece that we see wear out and break the most, is the extractor. That's probably a spare part I would have. I would also have a spare recoil spring. Uh, the recoil spring should be replaced in our carry pistols once a year. Uh, that's something that we consider just part of regular routine maintenance. Uh, other than that, it would probably do Carlton best to get on some sort of internet uh, forum or chat room where uh, bursas are the topic there. Uh, I think there's a place called bursachat.com. And just ask in there, what's, what's the common part in my gun to break? And then make sure you have that part. Uh, we, of course, have to consider how crazy are we going to get about our spare parts. If we're going to keep every single part that could break in the gun as a spare, we probably can't buy all those parts for the price of a new gun. So it gets to the point where, yeah, I'm just going to buy a spare gun and have that off to the side in case something breaks. Uh, with all the rest of the guns out there, rifles, shotguns, uh, revolvers, lever actions, all that sort of thing, uh, each has its own weak part, and from brand to brand and model to model, there's different parts that are more common than others to break. Uh, the recoil springs, again, in the pistols are important, and for those who carry 1911s, we'd want to replace the recoil spring along with the firing pin spring as a set. 
Uh, for those who have AR-15s, we recommend that you keep an, a complete spare bolt. Uh, the extractor, again, is, is the part that breaks most often on that rifle, and having a spare extractor is a great idea, but we say just have a complete bolt assembly so you can swap it out. Uh, other than that, we could spend uh, days talking about spare parts and things that break in different guns, and we won't take up your time doing that. Uh, but we're going to be, for your listeners on the East Coast, out in West Virginia on September 14th and 15th doing a Level 1 handgun course. You can get a hold of us to sign up at info at fortressdefense.com, and our phone number is 708-522-8060. Thanks. I have to agree with everything Frank said. I would also say on a burst of thunder, we're talking about a $220, $240 gun, and uh, you can real quick get up to 100 box worth spare parts for a gun. And that is, in that particular case, one that makes a lot of sense that two guns is better than backup parts. Um, it's it's not that, and maybe you still have some of the parts you recommended, but uh, if you're that worried about it, that might be a good thing. Now, I will say about the Burst of Thunder, because it's an inexpensive gun, a lot of gun snobs don't like it. I have talked to so many police officers that have chosen that as a backup firearm or an off-duty carry gun, and it has an incredibly good reputation as being reliable. Uh, I've shot it a lot of times. I've never experienced a mal malfunction with one. Uh, it, it handles well for what it is. It carries well. It's a good gun. Just my thoughts on it. Um, let's go ahead and take another question. And this one for me. Hey, Jack. Brad from Nebraska. Just noticed in the story that the U.S. Treasury has reported our national debt has remained exactly static for the past, at one point, 56 days back in July. I still think it's there. It's like $16,699,000,000,000. has not changed $1, and it's coincidentally under about $25 million under the spending limit. So it smells a little fishy when something like that stays the same for more than a day much less 70 days or so, or 56 days. So just curious. Thanks. Well, this was one of the first research assignments that I gave my new intern, Josiah, and he was able to basically confirm that it's true. And I had already done that, but he was able to confirm it by going to the Treasury's website. And there's actually reports you can download of every single day and see where the numbers are. And that number, as of yesterday anyway, of total uh, debt subject to limit sixteen trillion six hundred and ninety nine billion three hundred and ninety six million dollars is still the same, and it's ridiculous that it's still the same. I don't care if it goes down; it shouldn't stay the same. It doesn't make any sense. <clears throat> Now, looking at intergovernmental holdings um, and the total public debt outstanding sixteen trillion seven hundred and thirty eight billion is higher and exceeds the statutory debt limit, which means there is some, some some money in there that's not subject to limit. Some of that money works this way. The federal government can and does borrow against Social Security. Now, I'm not just talking about the general fleecing and, and federal federal retirement funds as well. I'm not talking about general fleecing. I'm talking about where U.S. federal workers have a retirement account um, beyond Social Security, and the government goes in and borrows against their retirement account and leaves an IOU behind, that doesn't get subjected to the to the public debt limit. It's intra-department. Um, 
some intergovernmental stuff shows up, some doesn't. It's, it's, it's hard to tell what's going on here. But for the total public debt to remain just under the statutory limit, by the way, it's under the statutory limit by a few hundred million dollars. The, the, the number that we're sitting at, now it's over a month. 16 trillion, 699 billion, 396 million. The, the limit is 16 trillion, 699 billion, 421 million. So we're talking about, what, 25 million dollars. 25 million dollars under the, the debt limit without the debt ceiling debate going on and all again. And no one's really talking about it now. You know, there's no election coming up or anything. There's no fiscal cliff being talked about. The, the number just stays there. Let me be blunt. The federal government has continued, continued to sell treasuries to the tune over this period of time of about $50 billion. Quantitative easing infinity has con continued for about another $40 billion. All of that should be being applied to the U.S. governmental debt. There are only two things that would explain this right now. Either the government has found money it didn't know it had and has been able to pay off debt at exactly the same frequency that it's adding it. So they bring it, they, they extended about 90 billion, but they paid off 90 billion. If you believe that, I would like to sell you the, the, the Golden Gate Bridge for scrap metal because you're dumb enough to, to possibly buy it from me. I'll make you a great, by the way, anybody who wants to buy the Golden Gate Bridge for me, I have a deed and all. Um, it's only a hundred bucks. Get in touch with me, I'll sell it to you. Um, so that's, that's that. The other thing is that somewhere in all of the accounting, they're taking money off of the public books and putting it on the private books. This is more likely. Do you know the government can, can keeps a completely separate set of books for Social Security? And it also keeps a set of what are known the black, as the black books. The black books, or the black ops books, are things that the government spends money on that it really says it's just for our own safety and security as a nation they can't tell us about. And there's billions of dollars here and billions of dollars there. Even though everything's supposed to show up in the intergovernmental holdings number, we know that it does not. So the other option is that the government is playing games with the books behind the scenes and moving debt from one set of books to another set of books without accounting for it. That's a lot more likely than the explanation that they've been paying it off as fast as they've been lending it or borrowing it. That, that means seriously. So the answer to this right now is I don't know. I went through a dozen websites. Our, our new intern went through quite a few websites. Uh, I will put a link in the uh, show notes where you can go to the Federal Treasury website and you can download the reports day after day after day. And you can watch that number stay at 16, 699, 396 and not move. This doesn't make sense, folks. Again, if they wanted to say they were paying it down and it went down, fine. If it went up, fine. For it to freeze? You're borrowing money, but the debt's not moving. You're spending money, but the debt's not moving. So I decided to turn over to my favorite source about the truth of U.S. governmental debt and take a look at what the U.S. national debt actually is, the public debt. And they say it's 16.8 trillion, which is exactly what? 200 million, 200 billion higher. So it's 16.7. So it's about 
100 billion, 185 billion right now, this second, 185 billion more than the Treasury says. You have to decide what source you believe, but here's what I'm telling you. Will, you know, I've said this, there'll come a time when they'll just start lying about it. So if they can't fix it and they can't get the public to accept it, they'll just lie about it. We've just reached that. Now, is this, you know, the beginning of the final big lie? It'll all be okay. Don't worry about it. Kaboom. Uh, probably not. This might even be a test run. How stupid are they? Because if you, I can't find anything really about this on CNN or even Fox News. It's, it's all alternative media. There's an article about it on The Blaze. There's a few other people picked it up. But you would think that someone at CNN or MSNBC or Fox News or somebody would be just like, hey, what's the deal? And bring in one of their talking. Can you, Tom, can you explain to us exactly what's going on here? And, and for the other side of the story, we have Bill. I mean, you would think that somebody, you know, well, they all protect Obama. No, they don't. Not all of them. Fox News doesn't. They make a living bashing Obama. So what's the deal here? I don't know. If you can get me more information about what's actually going on and not, you know, from like conspiracytheorist.com where you can actually show me where the numbers are going, I'd love to know about it. If, uh, I don't know what Comptroller David Walker's up to these days, but if he's accessible in any way, that'd be a great question. If any of you guys read a blog he does or anything like that, uh, for David Walker, I'd love to hear what he has to say about this. Anyway, uh, my answer is that it's most likely that they're simply lying about it and moving the debt to where it, from where it's accounted for to where it's simply not accounted for and subject to the public limit. Let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Jason from Western Pennsylvania. Uh, this is Nicola on the forums in the MSB. Uh, this is a question for expert panel member Tim Glantz over at Old Grouch. Uh, my question is, is, I guess, what is the general lifetime regarding availability and what I'll call reasonable pricing of true military surplus gear such as packs or camo and uniforms, uh, specifically regarding Alice and Molly equipment? Seems within the last 12 to 18 months, um, I've been uh, interested in the Alice system due to its durability, usability, and relative availability at cost-effective surplus prices. And I've wanted to construct some of what are called the Hellcat hybrid packs uh, that combine some Molly straps with the Alice system and possibly even doing some at a no or low profit cost for friends and family. Uh, however, it seems in the last 12 months, a lot of the real Milserp Alice gear has either jumped in price considerably, is persistently unavailable, or has been replaced by uh, new manufacturer items of dubious or unknown quality. Since Molly is still the standard issue for the Army, it doesn't seem that any real quantity of that has entered the surplus pipeline yet. Um, and you know, with the, even with the Marines moving to the ILBE stuff, um, Molly really doesn't seem to be there you know, in, in bulk surplus yet. So with rising cost and decreasing quality of Alice gear, uh, it makes sort of the value proposition of what I was looking to do uh, sort of diminish in favor of off-the-shelf purchases, uh, especially if you're trying to standardize on parts and replacement and interchangeability for the long haul. It seems that at least to me that Woodland BDUs had the same abrupt uh, tail off a few years ago uh, once ICUs were widely issued. Just wondered what your thoughts were on that and how one should view the life cycle of real military surplus of items like packs and uniforms. Thanks a lot for your answer. Well, Mr. Tim, what say you, sir? 
Hi, Jack. It's Tim from Old Grouch's Surplus with an answer for Jason on his question about surplus pricing availability. Surplus follows what I like to call a reverse bell curve in pricing, generally. the When something's new, there's going to be a lot of demand for it and not much supply on the market. Anytime something is the latest out there, some people just have to have it, and they'll pay a premium price, and the price will be really high. Then as supply comes out and more people have it and it becomes more available, the price will slowly drop, and it'll keep going down, and then... When the military decides to not use that item anymore, usually they'll dump a bunch on the market in a short period. I say short period, you know, one to five years. It's a slow transition, and that is when prices will be at the absolute bottom. But then once they're done with it and it's out of the system, then the supply starts to dry up, and demand will probably stay a little higher than supply, and prices will go up, and some items even reach eventually collectible status. And then they're right back up there where they started to begin with. So you can try to time a market and get it to the very bottom, but it's it's guesswork sometimes on that also. Uh, you know, the Hellcat builders, he mentioned the Hellcat pack using the Molly straps on the Alice frame. And that is one of the reasons why Molly woodland packs are not out there anymore because people bought up all the straps without buying the rest of it. So a lot of dealers are sitting on packs and frames that they can't do anything with. The Alice packs hit bottom a few years ago, and now they're out of the system, and demand is still high for them, so I'm starting to see prices go up on components, and we're going to see Alice pack prices starting to go back up here in the next few months. There is a good bit of Molly surplus out there, the real stuff, if the dealers are willing to do the work, but a lot of dealers just find it easier to to sell the import copy stuff because they can sit down with a catalog, order it, and they've always got it, whereas with the real surplus, we have to get out there, we have to hunt it, bid for it, sort it, uh, repair, repair it sometimes, and it takes a lot more work. There's two things to keep in mind uh, with surplus. Number one, the supply is unsteady. So what's available this week may not be available at all next week. And a lot of stuff I had two years ago that I just don't have. So if you if you want it and it's available, don't wait. Get it as long as the price is right for you. And number two, uh, it's not a fashion show. I've got access to all the surplus in the world, and when I put together my stuff, some of it is the ACU camo pattern, some's woodland, some is desert, some is the coyote brown, but it all works. Uh, people get way too hung up on does all my gear match. Believe me, you can hide just as good in the woods with a coyote brown pouch on a woodland vest as you can if everything's just woodland. And if a color is just too far off for your situation, you can always dye it or put a light coat of spray paint on it, and you'll still come out cheaper buying it that way and doing that then you will uh, trying to color match every single thing with surplus uh, I hope this helps a little bit and thanks to Jason for the question and keeping me in mind for it well great stuff from our expert council member Mr. Tim Glantz and I'll tell you his uh, his word on that is uh, is golden because it's the industry that he has been in for a very long time Old Grouch's military surplus is one of the true military surplus stores that are still around out there let's get another question from you guys hi Jack this is Alan from Austin Texas I was calling I had a question about cleaning HDPE barrels I recently picked up a 55 gallon blue HDPE barrel for storing long term water and I worry that I maybe use too much bleach to clean it out, even though I rinsed it out. And I'm wondering if, in addition to that, if that's possible or if I'm worrying for nothing because I'll eventually use my Berkey filter to 
uh, filter the water before drinking it in an emergency situation. I appreciate all you do. I thank, thank you. All right. Bye. That's my layup answer of the show. The answer is it doesn't make a hill of beans difference. You don't need to worry about it, and yeah, you're worrying for nothing. If you had, let's say, a 15-gallon barrel and you put a couple ounces of bleach in and filled up with water and drank that, it might not taste great, but it ain't going to kill you or nothing. Um, if you've rinsed it out, uh, you got a little bit of residue in there, it just doesn't make a hill of beans of difference. I mean, you can use bleach in the right amounts to actually make water safer to drink so doesn't really matter and then the primary activating uh, thing you have there is chlorine which is very subject to evaporation so if you take highly chlorinated water and let it sit in the sun for a few days it becomes no longer chlorinated and it will begin to have things grow in it again so if you're that worried about it all you got to do is take the lip off of that barrel and set it out in the sun and let whatever chlorine gas is in there off gas for a day or two and You ain't going to have any in there anyway. So, yeah, you're worrying for nothing. Don't worry about it. Rock on with life. Um, don't put a gallon of chlorine bleach in a 15-gallon drum and fill it up with water. That's that's not a good idea. But just using it as a cleaning agent, no, you have nothing to worry about. Um, in the brewing world, chlorine is often used um, to sanitize equipment. Uh, I don't like it because you can get residue there, and in in that kind of quick thing, like I've used it and I'm going to go right away, if you don't get enough rinse, you can get some off effects in beer, but it ain't going to hurt you. You just hurt your results with your beer. Let's take another call. Hey, this is uh, Richard from Houston. I was just calling to follow up on the, uh, the feedback show from Monday, the question, or not question, the comment about... Uh, the nitrogen fixing plants and I just had to make a comment about how if this if this is something that could be used widely and it does get used widely and accepted right away uh, as many things tend to get if there's some big big stink about them and everybody thinks it's the best thing uh, what happens if all the plants are nitrogen fixing do you get nitrogen too much nitrogen in the soil I mean typically you don't want to you don't want to put fresh Manures, suppose you know different different things. You don't want to put too much nitrogen. You'll burn the crap out of the plants. And how how do we how do we know that people aren't going to just like everything else that's synthetically made or, or commercially produced doesn't get overdone? And uh, obviously it, it'll be pretty obvious, but uh, just makes me think, you know, that, that everything else gets overdone. And will this also uh, support further cropping? It should be that much easier since you don't need to rotate your crops through. You don't have to put nitrogen fixing in the soil if you even try, if you don't use the, the commercial fertilizers in the first place. Uh, will it just further separate us from the history of, of rotating crops and knowing your, knowing your foods? You know, I don't need to know my foods. I'll just, I'll just sprinkle this magic bacterium on my, on my, my seeds and, and uh, it's just going to grow and make it that much easier. Yeah, it seems like it would make it easier for a lot of things and make it better and cleaner and clearer. But the part of our part of our nature in making money overall just seems like uh, it's going to get taken advantage of and it's going to be used improperly. Um, or it could be, I should say, very easily. Uh, people just don't want to think for themselves anymore, and, and uh, I can I can see this just being another another one of those things that. that Could have been a miracle thing, but but might be used in, the, in, a, in a malicious way without even intending to. Anyway, Jack, I uh, love the show. I just wanted to make that comment. Thanks. Bye. 
Um, I, I'm going to have more about this as I'm getting more and more feedback from more and more people explaining to me biochemically and scientifically what's going on with this. Um, just a quick follow-up on it. Basically, the right word for what these scientists are doing with this bacterium and how they're getting it into the intracellular level of these seeds is they're infecting the cell. So it is not genetic modification, though that doesn't mean that the cell might not, you know, the, the, the seeds themselves might not, as a response, genetically modify themselves over time. We don't know what we're doing, but that's a whole new can of worms. Um, I've also sent off some documentation that one of you guys got me, some actual documentation from uh, the people doing the work uh, to Jeff Lawton and asked him to maybe send it off to some of, uh, some of the research scientists he knows to dig deeper into it from that angle. Uh, so I'm going to get more data on this and try to report back to it on, on you guys next week. Um, for those that missed it, there's this new technology out that I released a story about on Monday where scientists are able to use a certain kind of bacteria that fixes nitrogen and infect um, the seeds of things like a corn plant or a soy plant. Or, well, soy you wouldn't do, but corn or, uh, let's say, wheat. So that just like a legume, like a soybean naturally fixes nitrogen, these plants can naturally fix nitrogen and thereby eliminate the need for nitrogen fertilization. Um, as far as too much nitrogen in the soil from naturally fixed nitrogen, I have never heard of that being a problem ever with runoff or anything like that. Now, to be fair, generally when you have large amounts of naturally fixed nitrogen, it's when forest-based and prairie-based systems that have lots of roots and they're perennial-based or self-reseeding annuals and perennials hold the soil together. So <clears throat> in a natural system, you would not only not have the excess nitrogen runoff into the groundwater due to the fact that it's not a problem in of itself, but so much more so that <clears throat> nothing is really running off in excess and other plants are there in a polyculture to use it. But I'm not so sure that nitrogen-fixing bacterium would ever, in any circumstance, cause the type of nitrogen runoff that something like dumping NPK fertilizer does and the dead zones and everything else goes along with it. So I'm not sure that's an issue. I guess it technically could be, but it seems unlikely. More to the point, though, is your other comments, and this is my bigger concern. Okay, so now everything fixes nitrogen. We don't have to worry. And just the denuded, the denuded soil that we already have and how much worse that will become and how much worse overall runoff, erosion, et cetera, could become if this technology is, is utilized incorrectly. I still have the jury out on this. I am not one of these people that goes, anytime science does anything, it's evil. I, I, I just don't know. There's a, my spider sense, if you want to call it that, is just going off like... Something seems really, really bad here. But then the words of Jeff Lawton about Monsanto keep ringing in my ear. If we only had their research budget for good, what could be done with properly harnessed technology and science to repair the damage to the ecosystems? I, I keep hearing that. I keep thinking maybe this is a step in the right direction and maybe it's not. The fact that we're actually infecting cells with bacteria. We're not, this is, people have said, it's like inoculating a, a seed. It's not, it's not like inoculating. Inoculation is I make sure the bacteria that already has a symbiotic relationship with the plant is present so they can choose to symbiotically relate to each other. This is taking it and in, it's literally an infection. And it infects every cell of the plant, which means it infects the cells that make the seed that are the yield that you eat. So how they say, well, this bacteria is harmless to humans. In what quantity was it ever meant to exist in the gut of the human being? 
Is it truly benign and irrelevant to us? Is it beneficial to us? Is it harmful to us? And those are just say it's got to be harmful. We don't know that, but boy, it sure feels that way. So my jury's out on this one. I'm trying to be open-minded. I would love to see some advances made for good out of technology and agriculture. I mean, this is still a monoculture. It's still going to have all the pest problems, etc. But if it's a step in the right direction, I'll admit it. I just don't know yet. Let's take another call. Actually, um, this is another one of those ones that were um, written in. And to be fair, again, this is one I chose not to uh, answer but to send off to uh, the expert council member that I felt would be right for it. But, again, if you want a question directed to an expert council member, the best thing you can do for both of us is to call it in and email me with it. But I'm going to go ahead and do this one because I chose to. Uh, it says This is from Jack in uh, Ardmore, Oklahoma. Jack says, I'm rescuing 11 astrolop hens and two astrolop roosters from a family member who's failing in health is not permitting him from uh, to care for them any longer. They are in horrible shape. They are really stressed and are picking each other really bad. They have red skin, and the hens have no feathers on their backs and tails. I feel the reason for their stress are mainly lack of feed, water, and sanitation. I've never had stressed chickens like this. Do I care for them differently than I would for my healthy birds? I have some thoughts on this, but I thought Darby Simpson would be a hell of a lot better uh, of a resource on it than me. So, Darby, what say you, sir? Hey, Jack, this is Darby Simpson from the Expert Council calling in to answer Jack's question about rescuing a flock of black ostrilorps who are really stressed out and have some extreme feather loss. Jack's primary question was, should he care for these birds differently than his existing flock of healthy birds? Well, I'm not exactly certain how Jack handled his current laying hens. This is what I would personally do for this group of birds were I to uh, personally take them in. First and foremost, I would not mix these unhealthy birds in with an existing flock. The lack of feathers could be from stress and picking, or it could also be from mites or even lice. You don't want to infect your existing flock if that is the case, and since he's not 100% certain, I would keep them separate. You also don't want to subject these already stressed birds into an environment where they might get picked on more by your existing flock because they are new and weak. They definitely need time to heal before being introduced to the other birds. Second, I would probably separate the roosters from the hens during the healing process. Having had black ostrilorps myself, the roosters are probably not overly dominant, but they could be adding to the picking problem. Giving the hens and roosters their own space for a while is probably a good idea. Be certain to give the layers plenty of room and consider uh, cutting your stocking density in half or even by two-thirds. This will help give a weak bird the space she needs to get away from another hen or hens who might be picking on her repeatedly. If uh, after doing this you still notice picking on one or two hens specifically, then you should go ahead and separate them as well until they heal and can defend themselves. If after a few weeks you don't see a big improvement in their feathers, you may need to do some research about conventional or holistic approaches to treating mites and lice. Personally, I've not had to deal with that, so I don't really have any uh, suggestions as to what treatments may or may not work. In either case, don't mix any of these chickens in with your existing birds until you are certain there isn't some type of infestation present. The feather loss could also be from a mineral deficiency in their feed, so I would suggest using a good quality layer ration that has a uh, mineral premix in it from a company like Fertrell or Health for Feeds. This will make certain that the birds are getting the minerals they need to be at their best. If you need a referral where you can buy a ration like this at a reasonable cost, please email me directly, and I will get you connected with my personal grain mill, which is located here in central Indiana, 
my opinion is that it would be well worth the cost of shipping if you can't find feed like this locally. And, of course, there is no substitute for getting them outside in the fresh air and sunshine where they can graze and take dust baths to both eliminate pests and improve their diet. Be certain that this includes some space that is actually grassy and not just in a coop or outdoor run that is mud and dirt. This may require you to buy some poultry netting from a company like Premier Fence, but it would be a worthwhile investment for all of your birds, not just these new ones. Happy birds are healthy birds, and being outdoors, acting out their God-given traits will make them happy. Uh, wherever you're going to bed them, I would suggest using a deep litter of fresh pine shavings. You can buy bags of pine shavings, giving you about seven cubic feet per bag for four to five bucks from your local farm store. While these aren't free, pine shavings are very benign and won't potentially add to your problem like free sawdust could due to the oils and acidity levels of some species of wood. The last thing you'd want to do is get something like walnut oil onto their already irritated skin. I hope this helps and that before long you have some healthy, productive birds to add to your existing flock. Black Ostrilorps are one of my favorite breeds and are worth every effort to save. To find out more about me, please feel free to visit my website at darbysimpson.com where you can sign up to receive free info via email about all things related to pasture-based production of poultry, pork, and beef. You can also email me directly to get a specific question answered as well. Thanks for the question and good luck. Please follow up and let us know how they do. Take care. Next up, I've got another question that was written in that I kicked over to Stephen Harris. Um, I won't say again what I'm saying, but this one actually I think came in for Steve. Um, what would you do with a 48-volt, 3,000-watt DC inverter telco generator? I currently have a gas-guzzling 120-volt, 5,000-watt generator, but can get one of these brand-new ones for one of these brand-new for free. Do I need to get numerous batteries to use this? Should I get a 48-volt DC inverter, sell it? What are your thoughts? So, uh, Steve Harris, what do you say about a 48-volt telco generator? Hi, this is Steve Harris with the Expert Panel calling in with the answer to your question. A 48-volt telco generator is a piece of industrial-scale equipment with industrial-scale prices. All you need is good civilian equipment. So if you're getting this thing free, you're better off selling it and using the money to improve your other preparations, your food, your water, your medical, etc. Now, sometimes the most expensive thing you can get is free. I'm sure you've heard this. Here's this how. Now, Jack told me not to get too detailed again with part numbers and everything, so I'm just going to do this on the back of, on, on, of the envelope and give you the answers, okay? So if you got a free 48 volt telco generator, uh, and, and that's all it does is make 48 volts DC. It doesn't make anything else. The generator spins and it makes 48 volts. It's designed to run to a 48 volt battery bank in like a cell phone tower. So in order to use this thing, you are going to need eight GC2 six volt golf cart batteries to really make the battery bank, and this will match the generator. Now that's 105 bucks. For each battery and $15 for the core charge, that's $220 each for a GC2 golf cart battery at Sam's Club. And that's about the best pricing you'll get. So 8 times 120 is 960. You got $960 right there in batteries. Now, keep in mind, inverters at 12 volts, guys, I keep on pushing this, are cheap. A 2,500-watt Whistler inverter, a really good one, is less than 200 bucks. 
You can see it at battery1234.com and a bunch of other Harris-approved inverters. Now, a good 2,500-watt inverter at 48 volts is going to be well over $500 instead of under 200 I can't even find a 48 charger for you, 48 volt charger for you, and I'm not going to spend a half hour looking. Needless to say, if I can't find it in five or ten minutes, they're not cheap and they're not easily available. Congratulations, you welcome to the world of above 12 volts. Now, whereas a 12 volt charger would cost you at most $100 for a 55 amp charger, uh, you can see that on the same website, and it's also for sale at Walmart. But I found just for you, and I did this in five minutes, I found a 48-volt, 220-volt trip light inverter and charger all-in-one for you for $740 on Amazon. And that's at 2500 bucks. okay? Good unit, good quality unit would do you good. So you'll easily have a good $100 in cables and connectors and more. (laughs) So let's just say you got $1,000 for batteries, $750 for the inverter, and at best by time that's all put together, remember you're stringing together eight batteries, you're going to have $2,000 spent for your free 48-volt generator. Now remember... That's a $740 inverter charger I found for you. It will charge your batteries off of 120, so you don't need to start your generator just to uh, charge your batteries. Remember, you want to keep your batteries charged up all the time at 100%. That's how you get the best life out of them. Uh, <laughs> yes, Jack and I did an entire two shows on batteries, and they're at battery1234.com. So you don't need to run the 48-volt generator to charge the batteries unless the power is out. Now, keep in mind, we've not even talked about the storage of gasoline yet and the cost of storing gasoline for your free 48-volt generator. If you have a $2,000 generator, you better have at least $200 in gasoline stored, at least. I love how you say your current 500-watt generator that you currently own is a gasoline hog. (laughs) That's funny. If you think it's a gasoline hog, it's because you only have five gallons of fuel for it and it runs out in one day. You know, anything that runs out in one day is is a hog. If you only got a five-gallon pail of water and you guys drink it, you know, in one day, uh, you're a water hog. So you got to have more. If there is one thing worse than the gasoline hog of a generator, it's no generator. A 5,000-watt generator uses five gallons at half load, so 2,500 watts, in 10 hours. So at worst, you'd be at five gallons in 15 hours. That's at one-third of a gallon per hour, providing 1,250 continuous watts of power, which this is a much more realistic number for a house in a disaster. Now, it's July in the year 2013, and gasoline is at 3.50 a gallon. Let's say no matter how you store your fuel, it'll cost you about a buck fifty per gallon for the storage of that fuel. That's whether you're in a five-gallon can or 15-gallon barrels. Yes, I have a whole show I did with Jack on fuel and fuel storage. It's at solar1234.com for you to listen to. So that's five dollars per gallon of fuel stored. Okay. $2,000 in fuel buys 400 gallons of store of fuel. If you use one-third of a gallon per hour at one-quarter load or 1,250 watts, you'll always use and you'll always use fuel at a quarter load, even if you're running a four-watt nightlight. 
to keep the monsters away for your daughter. And for explicit details on fuel usage in a generator, the, yeah, I have two shows I did with Jack on generators. You know where they are. So 400 gallons of stored fuel at one-third of a gallon per hour is 1,200 hours of operation of your generator. So if you run your generator two hours in the morning for breakfast, two hours in the evening for dinner, another two hours of miscellaneous through the day, that's six hours per day. That's 200 days of fuel. That's 200 days of fuel for your gas-guzzling generator for the same price you would be spending for the invert for your free 48-volt telecom generator. That's a little excessive. I, you know, 400 gallons is a lot of fuel. I wouldn't quite recommend that, but I just want to put it in perspective for you. Oh, don't forget, <clears throat> you need to change your oil every 100 hours in your generator, so you need 12 quarts of oil to be stored as well for all that fuel. So on one hand, let's say you can spend $500 on fuel and have 100 gallons of fuel. I mean, that's pretty darn good. If you got 100 gallons of fuel stored, then that's for your car, that's for your generator, that's for your Coleman dual fuel uh, camp stove, that's for your Coleman dual fuel mantle lantern as a really big backup. Or you can spend $2,000 on a battery and an inverter system for a free 48-volt generator. I can't guarantee what the fuel usage of that 48-volt telco gen will be either. It could be worse than what you have, but with one system you have good today, with the other system you got better tomorrow. With one system you have a lower cost of input, with the other you have not only a generator, but you have a large battery system with a very high quality inverter and charger on it. You are going to have to determine where your $2,000 is best spent. On more food and water, like Jack and I would tell you, or on an efficient electrical generation system. Personally, I'd say if you don't have way over six months of food and water to put away, don't do a $2,000 48-volt generator. Now, depending on where you live, you could easily be better off, if you had six months of food, spending $2,000 on solar panels, inexpensive 12-volt inverters, inexpensive 12-volt charger, and say about $500 in uh, a battery bank, plus... You now buy a bunch of extra fuel that you can store away for your generator that you currently have. And that generator can charge your battery bank, as we have all discussed about before. So you can uh, run busy on the surface and run the whole house, or you can turn off the generator and run silent, run deep. Again, I'll leave it to you. Tell us what you do with what I just explained on the TSP forums. And you can find all of my past shows on energy that I have done with Jack at solar1234.com. Thank you for the panel question. Please call in more. And to reiterate, I'd take that free unit, and personally, I'd sell it. And then I'd use the money to get the more uh, economical stuff and to start giving you redundancy. Two is one, one is none. Thanks, guys. Excellent answer, as always, from Mr. Harris. Uh, i got another one for me now, and then I've got one more for Steve, and, and we'll, we'll move on from there. So Steve will be back with us in just a minute, but for right now, uh, I found this to be an interesting question. Hi, Jack. This is John in Kentucky. I'm wondering how you determine um, hucksters and scammers from people who uh, have ideas that may be just outside the mainstream and based in truth. Um 
seems like with uh, a lot of the, the ideas that are on the uh, the edges of common mainstream thought, uh, there's room for people who are trying to sell something or scammers or whatever to uh, lace elements of truth into their ideas. Um, and uh, anyway, maybe be having a secondary agenda. Um, and when you're quickly looking around trying to gather information, sometimes that's not readily evident. So anyway, I'm just wondering uh, what your method is uh, as you're gathering data and sorting through things. Thanks. Appreciate the show. Bye. Well, the real answer is the way the question was asked at 99% of the time doesn't matter because you're talking about something new. So usually when somebody's hyping some new technology or some new thing, it's not really for sale yet. And it's like, is this coming or is it not? Like, you know, nitrogen fixing bacteria being infected into a plant cell. Well, we, we can debate whether or not that's good or not. We can look into it. And that's a really interesting one. And it's coming from a university and it's backed by years of study and funding. And that one might actually show up someday and might impact our lives. So that's, that's worth considering if something that's not here yet. The other side of the equation, there's all types of technologies that could some one day become, you know, lightsaber-like technology and save the planet or, or whatever it is. And there's nothing to see here, really, just an idea. And it's like, okay, consider the idea, file it under, could be, maybe, someday, possibly, I don't know, don't care, goodbye. And I got more important things in my life. Now, then we separate over to the other side of the thing where we have to worry about hucksters and the scammers. And that's where they're actually asking you for something. When they want your money, when they want you to do business with them, when they want you to buy their ebook and tell you ways to make power for free with your butthole or something stupid like that. How to build your own magical unicorn that will fart rainbows and, and grant you and deliver uh, wish granting angels on the end of a rainbow for you. I mean, like that. Okay, then this is what you have to do. Number one, first and foremost, there's no reason to be the first person to buy something on the internet. Just seriously, like someone else will do it, and if a couple of people buy something, it'll be real quick. You'll be able to just search for reviews on it, and you'll find out as long as you're not buying from a site that's all reviews, and they're all good, and gee, the guy's an affiliate for everybody, but legitimate reviews that say, here's what I got, I think it was good, I think it was bad. This day and age, it should be much harder to be ripped off because there's plenty of people that will tell you why they had a good experience or why they had a bad experience, including people that you just go, well, you're just an idiot. Right, You see reviews on Amazon, I ordered this and it doesn't come with a DC adapter. Well, that's because it doesn't claim to come with a DC adapter, dolt. And I wasn't really worried about it. So, I mean, you know, there's there's things like that. Or, you know, I ordered it and it took two days to get here. So you can actually read the reviews about anything, whether it be a private product or something for sale on Amazon. There's Sooner or later, if somebody's ripping somebody off, people are going to go out and say, hey, I got ripped off, here's how. And then you have to judge that for yourself. But I think the real way that you determine whether or not somebody's a huckster and a scammer is to examine their track record. How long have they been around and how many people have done business with them? When you have somebody that's been around five years, ten years, or something like that, and they've always done what they said they're going to do, and they come up with something new, it's probably legitimate. When somebody just shows up out of thin air and it's like, hey, look what I got, generally not so much. The reality, though, is it's up to each of us to evaluate things. And most things that are bullshit, you should almost know that something's wrong right away. When you have this, like, I better do it now, but there's that little thing in the back going, I don't know. It's probably better you listen to the little thing in the back. Because what you're dealing with is very effective sales technique at that point, very effective marketing that makes you feel like I'll miss the opportunity. And here's the reality. You ain't going to miss the opportunity. 
If you want to buy something today, somebody will sell it to you tomorrow. It's right up there with the car salesman that says, gee, buddy, I'd, I'd hate to see you. you. You seem so attached to this truck, and if you left right now and decided to sleep on it, you might come back tomorrow and it might not be here. Well, guess what, ass clown? When I want to spend thirty grand on a pickup truck, somebody will sell me one, so I'm going to be okay with that. That's the technique used to get you moving. So the way you really do it is you evaluate the person or the organization making the claim, and then evaluate the claim itself. If somebody says they have a new way to fuse two molecules together and create clean energy, um, and they're trying to sell you a $19 ebook on how to do it, it ain't that it's never possible to do that, but if you've got that figured out, you're not selling $19 ebooks. Use some common sense. And understand this. There's people out there that really feel that their job is to be a servant to humanity. And you can usually identify those people by their thoughts, deeds, and actions. And those are the people that you want to deal with when you have the choice. There's other people out there, even though their product may be okay, they're really in it 100% for themselves. It's not that there's anything wrong with profit. But people that are out there in business that are truly trying to serve others, those are the ones your business to go to first. I don't know if that's really the spirit of what you're asking. It sounds more like you're asking about all these new stories that come out, about all these new technologies that are going to save the world, and how do we separate the the possibly true from the clearly fictitious. And the answer is you let time sort that out. As long as they're not asking you for anything, don't really worry about it. Because if this new technology might save the world someday, it doesn't matter to you until might becomes action as long as you're not being asked to do anything. And even if it will, don't put your faith in things that will happen someday. Don't put your bets on something that will happen someday. What you do today is based on what is. And when we're planning for the future as modern survivalists, play, make your plays based on what is now. Don't think, well, I don't have to worry about energy because they're going to solve that problem in the next five years. There's a lot of people that thought that in 1975. And if they let their uh, smile be an umbrella with that thought, today their ass is soaking wet. Let's take another call. I've got a question for Steve Harris about leaving a battery charger plugged in all the time. From Steve's battery videos, I've got a basic setup with two AGM batteries and a 30-amp Schumacher battery charger. When it's plugged in all the time, it draws between 20 and 40 watts. Yes, the batteries are always fully charged, but it seems like a waste of electricity. So I only plug it in every two or three weeks for half an hour to top off the batteries. The charger says that they've drained to about 95%, but it seems like a good trade-off. What do you think, Steve? Hi, this is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. Thank you very much for calling in your question. If there was one thing I get as often as, it's an efficient which I addressed in a previous call-in in detail, is it's a waste of energy. You're wasting energy. Stop wasting energy. I'm wasting energy. And I get this on a regular basis. So let's address this. And I got out my 30-amp Schlumacher charger, and I put it on a fully charged battery. Why do I know it's a fully charged battery? Because I have a 10-amp Schlumacher charger on it 24-7. It's perfect. It's ready to go right now. It, the peak of its life, peak of its charge, it's ready. The 30-amp Schumacher charger on a 100% full battery was drawing exactly 29 watts according to my kilowatt meter. 29 watts 
per hour times 24 hours in a day times 365 days in a year divided by a 1,000, so you get kilowatt hours, gives you 254 kilowatts, kilowatt hours per year of electricity being used by that charger. Now, 254 kilowatts, I'm sorry, <laughs> I kind of watched my numbers here, 254 kilowatt hours times 10 cents per kilowatt hour is the cost of $25.40 per year in electricity to keep your 30-amp Schlumacher on the battery bank 24-7. Now, we're talking 29 watts here, a mere pittance of power. Your coffee maker uses 1,500 watts over 10 minutes to make a pot of coffee. Know what, want know what that's equal to? One pot of coffee in 10 minutes is the same as keeping your charger on for eight and a half hours. I guess your coffee pot, I guess your, your coffee a day is a waste of energy as well. You only need a 30, 40, or 55 amp charger if you're going to have a generator dump energy back into your battery banks during a disaster or have your car dump energy back into the battery banks via an inverter at the car battery under the hood with the car at idle dumping that energy back through an extension cord into your battery charger, into your battery bank. So that's when you need a 30, 40, or 55 amp charger. Other than that, you can go with the 10 amp charger. Now, I keep a Schlumacher 10 amp charger on my battery bank 24-7 at home. Guess what it draws? Yeah, 10 watts on a fully charged battery. It's because it's a little bit smaller than the 30 uh, amp charger. It's got less bells and whistles on it. It doesn't have a big display on it. It just draws a little bit less power. It's not more efficient. It's just smaller. When I unplug the battery, it's drawing 9 watts, just sitting there connected to anything. So it looks like there's a good 1 watt being used all the time to maintain the battery at one level or another. I found this true with my 30 amp. When I unplugged the battery, it was drawing uh, 28 watts instead of 29 watts. So I guess if you really want to split hairs, you could have 30 amp Schumacher for fast charging and the 10 amp Schumacher for 24-7 maintenance. Now that charger costs $40 respectively, and it is at Walmart, as well as it's on battery1234.com, along with the whole family, so you can see what you might want. So if you got the $40 10 amp charger that draws 10 watts and kept it on 24-7, you would save 19 watts. 19 watts times 24 hours in a day times 365 days a year, divided by 1,000 for kilowatt hours is 166 kilowatt hours in a year of power being used. 166 kilowatt hours during the year times 10 cents per kilowatt hour is $16.60 a year in savings. That charger cost you 40 bucks. So your return on investment is 2.5 years. Plus your time for in fuel to drive to Walmart, plus the tax, so you'd have to, you know, have to pay on the item. It's a good three years of return on investment. And if you get the 10 amp charger instead of the 30 amp charger, because it's wasting energy. Now let's look at some other power around the house. My wife's Keurig coffee maker draws four watts, four watts just sitting there waiting for you to turn it on. This is with it plugged in and off. It's waiting for you to turn it on, and it draws four watts. 
When you turn it on, it draws five watts. My wife's uh, little fervil fish tank that she has a beta in draws 12 watts of power with the light and the little water pump filter running all the time. Yeah, I bet she'd love it if I told her that her coffee maker and her fish tank that she loves is a waste of energy. Uh, That would go over very well. Uh, My TV actually draws 24 watts when it's off. My cable box, and it's a small one, draws 22 watts when it's operating 24-7. Whoa, while we're at it, my washer and dryer do the same thing. Oh, my God, where's all that power going? I'm wasting energy. Hey, I know. I got an idea. I can put a timer on the battery bank charger and have it come on only for eight hours a day. But, oh, no, I... Steve Harris had to go and measure this as well. The timer itself draws one watt of energy, and it's doing that 24 hours a day. That's 80 cents a year of me wasting energy on a timer when I could just plug it and unplug it. Do you know what you can't buy with all the money in the world is more hours in a day. You only have so many seconds to live in your life, and then you're dead. Average life expectancy of a male in USA on a non-paleo, on a non-paleo GMO food, big pharma meds diet is 76 years. That's for a USA male. That's 2.5 billion seconds. Do you need to waste any number of those on anything? You want your life on automatic. You want your coffee, ma- coffee maker to make you one cup of coffee in 30 seconds and not a whole pot in 10 minutes. You want your clothes washed and then dried by moving them from one machine to the other and not spending 30 minutes, 1,800 seconds, outside hanging them up on a clothesline and then going back out and taking them down. You want to turn on your TV and have all of your TV sitting there ready for you to watch it when you want to watch it and able to skip through the commercials on the DVR, another 30 seconds saved per commercial. And do you really, really, really need to remind yourself to go and plug in your battery bank every two weeks? Do you really need another task to do in your life? And remember, do you know what fails in preparedness the most? People fail. People fail to rotate food. People fail to store what you eat, eat what you store. They fail to remember to charge their batteries. And then the power fails and you go, oops, it's been two months since I plugged those in. (laughs) I was supposed to remember to do it every two weeks. Rather than leaving it on all the time and the power fails and you go, gee, I know my batteries are at 100% ready to go. I got That's one less thing that I have to fear. Plus, that charger is a piece of instrumentation. It is a life support system and not a waste of energy. Not only is it making sure, 100% sure, that the battery is 100% topped off and not degrading, but it's monitoring the battery health for you. If a cell goes bad, the charger will start blinking or flashing an error code, and it'll get your attention, and you will know that there is something wrong with the battery. That's why I light little things on all the time in my battery bank. A little light on, the, the inverter, you know, a little uh, voltmeter, and the battery charger. Because I can look over it and go, yep, it's working fine, and just keep on walking through the basement. See, in this, you'll never see it. You'll never see this error code if you're just plugging it in every once every two weeks because it's a waste of energy. And when you need it the most, it'll be dead and you'll be in the dark. 
Do you have smoke alarms and carbon monoxide alarms in your house? Are those a waste of energy? They're watching your life. The battery charger is watching your health and life as well. I've said this before with people regarding electromagnetic pulses and trying to EMP-proof stuff, all of which you should not waste one second of your life on. Uh, that's a whole other story that Jack and, and I will both tell you the same thing on. But what I say regarding EMP is the same thing I'm going to tell you with chasing these little watts around your house. And is it a waste of energy? Is that once you start down that path, forever will it dominate your soul. Once you start down the path of, is it wasting energy? Is it wasting energy? You will start chasing every watt that is used around the house and forever will it dominate you and what you think and you'll end up with a very non-automated life that is wasting seconds, minutes and hours and giving, just giving you more things to do. And when you have more things to do, you got more things to forget and the less your preparedness will be. So, to answer your question, no, I don't think it's a waste of energy. I think having a battery charger on your battery 24-7 is as, is as important as your smoke detectors. You said you got two AGM batteries. Those things are over $200 each, $225 each on Amazon. So, you spent $450 on batteries, another 150 on inverters and other items, so that's an easy 600 bucks. And you're saying it's a waste of energy to spend an extra $19 a year on a life support system that keeps them operating 100% efficiency and such that you know they're always perfect and ready to go. Thank you very much for your question. Yeah, maybe I should have just gave you that paragraph in the very beginning, but I want you to understand the philosophy behind it. This is Steve Harris for the Expert Panel. As normal, you can find all of my previous stuff I have done with Jack on energy and wasting energy at www.solar1234.com. Thank you. Please call in another question. See you guys later. All right, so we've uh, we've got one more question today, and we'll wrap up. I think this has been an awesome show, though. I'd like to thank Steve. I'd like to thank Darby. I'd like to thank Frank. Um, I'd like to thank Tim. I mean, these guys are just awesome. You know, Keith Snow as well. And, and, and guys, if you want more shows like this with this much variety, get those calls in to expert council members. Remember, they're not the only council members that we have. We have some other folks. The end of every call-in show, we have people listed. Additional people would include Joe Nobody, Ben Falk, Paul Wheaton, uh, members of the council. So I love more questions. Uh, Steve always does a bang-up job of explaining things in extreme detail uh, to the point where you really don't have any debate if you don't agree. You're still like, well, there's all those damn facts in the way. So thanks for that, Steve. Um, with that, let's go ahead and take one more call and wrap up for today. Jack, I'm interested in learning more about uh, lining a small pond with bentonite. I had gotten a pretty negative impression of bentonite, uh, but go figure, that's from people selling synthetic pond liners. And then I heard you talk about bentonite, and, and so it got me re-examining it. I thought uh, I'd come back to you to get a little more info. Here's my situation. It's a small backyard, so the space I've got to put a pond in is roughly, call it 15 to 18 feet long and 8 to 10 feet wide. Uh, not a lot of space. I'm in Southern California. Uh, you know, we get those long, hot, dry summers. So uh, that would just evaporate in no time if it were too shallow. So I want to go deep 
And so my, my thought is to sort of have a shallow end and then uh, dig down uh, and have a deep, you know, four to six feet deep uh, deep end uh, where I'd have to build a uh, retaining wall. I've got a bunch of slump blocks that I can use for that. Um, and so I'm, I'm sort of thinking, okay, if I were to use bentonite, I've got a decent clay content in my soil here, 15 to 20%. Um, but I think that's a little on the low side, and I just don't want to have to worry about it. So my thought is go ahead and, and get the bentonite and mix it with my existing soil, um, and then uh, obviously for the bottom of the pond, that's fine, but thinking about how I would get that in behind the retaining wall, sort of build up the retaining wall, mix the bentonite with the existing soil, pack it in behind there. I'm just wondering if you were trying to do something like that, how how would you approach it? And then... Um, second part is on figuring out the evaporation rate. Before I even start this project, I want to understand if I'm going to have to put thousands of gallons of water uh, every summer in there to keep it from drying out, then I probably won't do it. Um, so obviously using shade and other things uh, can help with that. But um, I don't know, how, how would you approach sort of thinking about the evaporation rate? Um, thanks a lot. Appreciate your feedback. I saved a complicated one for the last one because this has a lot of moving parts and variables in it. Let's start out with um, belief that a pond, an 8 by 15 foot pond, doesn't hold that much water and evaporation might be a real concern. Uh, it certainly can be. It certainly can be, and where you live, you probably don't have a ton of rainfall. And the way you're planning on designing this thing right now doesn't seem like maybe you've picked the right place to do it. You might have picked the wrong place to do this. Because if you're using a retaining wall at all, unless you're going to be able to divert some roof flow or something like that, you're probably not going to get a lot of catchment the way you're describing this pond. So then you end up in a situation where you have to be the person putting water in it, and that opens up all kinds of issues because, you know, are you putting tap water in it or do you have a well? That makes a big difference right away because you don't have to worry about any kind of effect on the biological life with a well, but you do from a tap. Are you planning doing rain catchment? If you have a 1,500-gallon rain catchment tank sitting on the side of your house, keeping this thing topped off is simple with good quality water. Again, turning the garden hose on and doing it, and you're trying to grow plants and all, you're dumping chlorinated water in there in large volume. You see, they, so that that's in of itself. But just let's look at what an 8-by-15-foot pond with a 4-foot average depth rate in. So you get 2 on one side, 6 on the you average out about 4. That's 3,600 gallons of water. It's a lot more water than most people think, and it's a lot more stable uh, than most people would think with a pond of that size. You get down these little garden ponds that are, you know, three or four hundred gallons are nowhere near as stable with temperature and with evaporation, both. And a big part of what drives evaporation is temperature, and not just the temperature of the air, but the temperature of the water. 3,600 gallons of water surrounded by earth is a lot cooler than 3,600 gallons of water in an above-ground tank. So just by going subterranean, your evaporation rate goes down. So there's that. This retaining, I'm hard, I'm a hard time getting this pictured in my head, but I'm seeing a pond jutting out like a peninsula into a slope with a retaining wall on the backside, and I don't like that for pond design. So it may just not be a good site for a pond. You may need to look and see if there's another part of your land that makes a better sense for a pond. Or it may be that if you properly excavate your pond, you don't need a retaining wall. What you need to do is move the dirt you've ex excavated to the downhill side and contour base it back into the, the, the hill and impound water. That's the way you do this. You don't build retaining walls. 
If you're on a steep of enough slope to need a retaining wall, an in-ground pond you do not have. You have a freaking above-ground pond, that, and, and then you're trying to hold again. Now we got to start calculating. I'm not even going to do it, but foot-pounds of water, you're talking about a lot of... Uh, you're holding back a lot of weight at that point, and if you're doing it with a retaining wall versus a structure of earth contact structure into earth and leveled off the contour that dissipates it, you have a lot more chance of failure. So I don't know that your plan in of itself is a good one. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm not saying it's good. I'm saying I don't know. I'm saying you might think you need something you don't. You might be talking about a retaining wall that brings up an extra foot of freeboard, and I might be seeing one that brings up four feet of freeboard, and it's not as steep as I think it is. I don't know. But if the case is that, you know, the latter, it's if, you know, you're bringing up an extra foot, you probably don't need a retaining wall. What you need is to choose your site right and excavate properly. So don't get married to the spot you're thinking your pond should go. Look at the land and let the land tell you with water flow where a pond will go. And even with a small piece of land, you probably have more options than you think. This may or may not be a good idea for a pond in this location. That you'll have to determine for yourself. From a standpoint of bentonite, though, and people that say it's not a good idea, these people are idiots. Let me put it to you. There's two types of people that say don't do bentonite. There's smart people and there's dumb people. Dumb people are people that misunderstand bentonite or just want you to buy their rubber pond liner or their hard shell pond liner. These people are the dumb ones. You don't listen to them because they don't know what they're talking about. And in ponds that are small enough that you would line them with an, you know, an EDPM liner or a hard shell liner, you, the amount of bentonite you need is so small that you will spend less money for a more permanent structure that will look better than you will with a, a conventional rubber pond liner in 90% of the time. Now, It might actually make sense to put in a couple rigid pond liners and build up a retaining wall and do something just for a water garden in, in an environment that's more like what you're describing. It might, you might want to consider that. But if you can put a pond in the ground, right, then bentonite will almost always do a better job for you. The people that say not to use it due to any kind of a consideration about, well, it's a chemical, are idiots. Bentonite is a naturally occurring clay. When you're going to put a pond in, if you have clay, lots of clay in your soil, you're extremely happy. Why? Because it's easy to impound with clay. So what you're doing is you're in a situation where I don't have clay, so I'm bringing the clay in. Generally, the way you'll do a bentonite pond is you dig your pond, and then you'll lay down a layer of bentonite, and you'll actually till that in and then compact it. It will swell up when it gets wet. It'll hold water. You do need to think, even on a pond, though, of an 8 by 15 foot pond, about an overflow point and allowing that pond to overflow with a good flat surface overflow that's going to, to work effectively, especially if you're impounding it significantly where there's a significant amount of drop on the downgrade side. But bentonite in itself is all you're doing with bentonite is changing the soil that you have into the soil that you wish you had. If you had good clay content in the soil, you would be able to build a small pond or dam without a liner in the first place. So you're altering the structure of the existing soil by bringing in clay that's not there. And bentonite just happens to be a very clean, easy to work with, affordable, and available clay to do that with. So I'm sorry I can't actually answer your question as to should you or should you not put a pond in. But if you're going to put it in a pond that's going to go below grade in the ground 
and you're going to have opportunity for catchment, and you want it to be much more permanent and look much nicer than when... I mean, I know you can make a pond or a water garden look pretty good with a, with a flexible liner or even a hard shell liner, but it's still a liner, it's still there, and it's never really hidden. I've never seen a pond done with an EDPM liner that I couldn't walk up to it and go, oh, there's the liner. I've seen ponds that look pretty nice that way, but they still walk up to it and go, it doesn't really look natural. And a hard liner never really looks natural. Again, it's not that I would never use one. It's not that they can't look beautiful. It's not that they can't be functional. But it will always look like what it is, a man-made structure. With a little bit of creativity and bentonite, even a relatively small pond, And maybe you can figure out how to make this more of like a 10 by 15. Let's even look at, that's something I think people don't realize. So an 8 by 15 foot pond has 3,600 gallons. So you would think, you know, a 10 by 15 pond might add a couple hundred gallons. No, because of the 4,500 gallons. It's exponential as we increase it. And if we take go to 10 by 15 and can put an aggregate average depth in it to four and a half feet, do you know what happens? Over 5,000 gallons of water. That's a lot of water to hold, and it makes a very stable little ecosystem. The beauty of using bentonite is instead of having to contort the shape of the pond to the size of the liner you can afford or wish to bring in, you can build the pond to fit the landscape and then line it. Now, I did say there were smart people that say not to use bentonite. Who are these people? These are people that want to come in and construct like a half-acre pond on your property and don't think that it makes sense financially to bring in that much material to line a pond with. And in many instances, they're right. And in many instances, there's ways to do it without bringing in bentonite. One of the things you can do to impound water Uh, in areas where it doesn't seem like you have the material you need, is you excavate the material, you take a great big excavator, you scoop up the material, you shake the bucket, and it sorts out the finest material, and you separate the coarse material from the fine material, you build a keyway into your dam, you fill the keyway with the best material you can get, and a lot of times that dam will fill and hold without the added expense of bringing in off-site material. But if we're building a pond of a tenth of an acre or smaller, the amount of bentonite necessary to lay down between the one to four inches that are generally need of cover is generally not so expensive that you would be prohibited from building the, the pond. And it's certainly not as expensive as a, a set of EDM pond liners that you somehow weld together to get to that size. And to put in a pond, let's, let's say a 15 by 25 foot pond, it will absolutely cost you less to do it with bentonite, even if you have the poorest soil you could have and need a very thick covering of bentonite to make it happen. And the pond that you build will look like a natural structure. That's why I like bentonite, used within its limits and within the budget constraints of the projects that you're working on. What I will say for any property, small or large, if you can get water features into a property, Do it. It will improve your self-sufficiency, your biodiversity, and it will give you opportunities to grow some amazing things for your own consumption beyond fish that you otherwise wouldn't have. There's nothing wrong in the end with burying a couple big giant stock tanks and turning them into water gardens. That's always an option. Keep your mind open when it comes to water features. Do think about shade. Do think about evaporation, though. If you put a 400-gallon tank out in the middle of a burning sun... You'll spend all summer long constantly refilling it. If you put it in a place where it's shaded from evaporation, you shelter it with earth. 
it gets some shade for 50% of the day or more, you'll have a lot less problem maintaining a good water level and a significant ecosystem on your property. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're losing.